Well, I invite you to grab uh, either your own Bible if you brought it, or if you want to grab one of the Bibles out of the pews, you can do that. Uh, the text we're looking at tonight, if you're grabbing one of the pew Bibles, is uh, on page 824, uh, but we're going to jump around a little bit tonight. We're going to look at a few other places in the Bible as well together, uh, so, uh, so having those Bibles handy and ready to go would be great. Let's bow our heads and uh, let's pray. Lord God, I pray that the words I'm about to speak and the thoughts that we think as together we meditate on your word for us tonight. Lord, I pray that this would truly be acceptable in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer, who has given us the gift of one another. Amen. So before I start, just a quick question. Um, raise your hand if either A, you are divorced, or B, you know someone who's been divorced. Yeah, that's what I kind of figured, right? We just about probably all raise our hands. And, uh, and, and there's, there's no doubt that divorce is pretty rampant in our society, isn't it? And uh, from time to time you hear the statistics and, uh, and, and they're a little misleading, but in one way they are accurate. And that is that the divorce rate among Christians is just as high as the divorce rate among the general population. And uh, again, in one sense that is true. Um, when you factor in repeat divorces, it, it gets a little different. Christians do a little better in, uh, in that vein. But, uh, but so the question is, well, why is that, and, and what does Jesus really have to say about this? What should we as Christians who live in this society where divorce is so prevalent, where we've maybe even experienced it ourselves, um, how, how are we supposed to deal with this? And so we're going to take a look at that uh, together tonight. Um, Matthew chapter 19, um, it starts by talking about how the crowds are following Jesus, and then it says um, some Pharisees come up to Jesus, and they test him by asking this question, um, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause, the ESV says. I, I noticed the reading that we used um, in worship was for, um, for any and every reason, okay? Now, now, first of all, we need to consider what question they were asking Jesus and why they were asking it. I think a lot of times we hear that question and we assume what they were asking Jesus is, is it okay to divorce or not? But that's not the question they're asking. In fact, they were assuming that it was okay to divorce. Um, let, let's give you a little background here. The verse that was the teaching on this subject for them um, comes from the book of Deuteronomy. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it kind of quickly to you. We are going to go look at some other verses, but this one you can just listen to. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 says this, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. That, that's the, 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 the verses from Deuteronomy uh, that, that, they were, uh, that the teachers of the law in Jesus' day used as their standard to help them understand divorce. Now, a couple of things to notice about that. First of all, what if the wife wants a divorce? Well, the answer is she didn't or she couldn't. 
Divorce was a one-way thing in Jesus' day. A husband could set aside his wife, but a wife, except for rare occurrences, could um, have any kind of divorce um, against her husband. She was kind of stuck with him. And, and now there was different teaching among the rabbis of Jesus' day about what exactly qualified as cause for divorce. Uh, there was one school of thought under one rabbi that, that looked at that verse from Deuteronomy and said the husband had to find something indecent in the woman before he could divorce her. So he needed a reason. He needed a cause. And uh, most, most often they considered adultery uh, a cause why a husband would find something indecent in his wife um, for the most conservative. But, but there were some rabbis that said, well, if she spoils a dish, that's indecent. In other words, she ruined supper could be cause for divorce. Now, that sounds funny to us, but it's serious. That's seriously what the rule was. Um, you know, think for a second about that Samaritan woman that Jesus encounters at the well. And when Jesus says to her, you're right when you say you've had no husband. In fact, you've had five husbands and the man you're living with now is not your husband. We always assume that there's something wrong with her as a result, right? Maybe she was just a bad cook. I, I mean, I, I'm serious. Maybe she had just run into a string of husbands that had incredibly high standards. Now, there was a different school of thought uh, among the rabbis that emphasized the first part of that verse 24, which said that if a man, if, if a woman now no longer found favor in the eyes for a husband. And, and literally, that school of thought said, if, if a man finds a woman that's better looking and that he desires more, he can divorce his first wife for her. That's how lax they really were with divorce in the society of Jesus' day. Um, by the way, Josephus, a, a Jewish historian, um, writes about in those days, and this is the way he describes it, he, he literally says a man could ask for a divorce from his wife for any cause whatsoever. It, whatever, anytime he wanted, a man could simply set aside his wife. And as you heard, it was really pretty simple. You write out a certificate of divorce, you hand it to her, she's gone. So, so that's, the, that's the culture in which Jesus now has asked this question. So, so the Pharisees were really asking Jesus, how strict does it have to be, Right? That was their question. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? In other words, do you need a reason? How strong a reason do you need? And, and what they're trying to get Jesus to do is either commit to one or the other of the two different schools of thought among the rabbis, and then what they can do is get the other school of thought angry with Jesus. It's kind of like when you go to the primary and you have to choose a Democrat or Republican ballot, right? Now... You know, whatever. So, so that's what they're trying to do. Sorry, I brought that up. That was right. So, um, so here's the first curveball that Jesus throws. All right. So he says to them, "Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two become one flesh." So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. 
So, so Jesus throws them a curveball, and, and, and he kind of does it in two ways. First of all, the curveball is he doesn't go back to Deuteronomy and, and, and the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 24. He goes all the way back to Genesis, right? So, so let's start there. Let's look back at Genesis. So we're going to go to Genesis chapter 1. It's on page 1 in your black Bibles. <laughs> it is. <laughs> so, so Genesis chapter 1. And, uh, and, and so now be, God has begun to create this universe. And, and by the way, um, just a little side note here. I think Genesis chapter 1 is just a beautiful um, telling of the creation in a way that demonstrates that God created with a plan and with order and with intention, which flies in the face of evolutionary thought, right, which teaches this all happened by accident, that, that this was just a random occurrence, a roll of the dice, no, Genesis 1 describes that God created with meaning and with purpose. Now, now look at Genesis 1, uh, verse 26, okay? So Genesis 1, 26, uh, God says this. God said it's not good, I'm sorry, so God created, no, I'm, I'm sorry, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man or mankind in our image after our likeness. So, so what does that mean? What does that mean that we are created in the image of God? Does that mean we look like God? No, right? Um, I remember an old uh, Simpsons episode where Homer Simpson decided um, he was going to create his own religion. Um, you know, the kids and his wife could go to church on Sunday morning, but his religion was you sat around in your underwear and ate donuts and watched football. That was his religion, okay? And God shows up and sits with him on the sofa. Interesting conversation ensues. But guess what? God looks exactly like Homer Simpson, only with a big white beard, right? So is that what it means to be created in the image of God? No, of course not. Um, so what is it talking about? Well, verse 27 tells us at least what is at the heart of this idea that we're created in the image of God. Um, I don't, in your Bible, notice how that verse 27 is typeset a little bit differently. That's because in the original Hebrew, this is a poem, a little poem, um, and the poem says this, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So look at the, the ends of the second and third lines. You've got this kind of parallel structure there. He created him, he created them. But then look at the beginning of those two lines. In the image of God and male and female. In other words, what this is saying here is that there's something um, kind of inherent in the fact that God created us male and female that relates to this idea that we're created in the image of God. Now, look ahead at chapter 2. Well, first of all, at the, at the end of chapter 1, uh, the very last verse, uh, verse 31, it says, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was, what does he say? Very good, Very good. right? Uh, there isn't a word for perfect in Hebrew, by the way. This is as close as it gets. It was very good. It was exactly what it was supposed to be. Uh, but then look at chapter 2 in 2 verse 18. Um, in 2 verse 18 it says, Then the Lord God said, Uh-oh, something's not good. What's not good? It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, um, I always, when I go through this verse with a couple that's preparing to get married, 
Um, you know, one of the things I love about doing weddings is that time I get to sit down with a couple before they're going to get married and go through what God's word has to say about marriage. And when, when, I, when I look at this verse with them, I, 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 I kind of peek up while I'm reading it, or I have one of them read it, and I watch the, the, the woman's face when God decides he's going to make a helper for Adam. Did any of you react against that word? Maybe a little. Uh, but, but first of all, re- remember that this was originally written in Hebrew, right? And, and, and when we translate from one language to another, sometimes we lose something in the translation, and sometimes we gain something in the translation. And what we've gained in the translation here is this idea that a helper is somehow subservient or second class, okay? Um, Let me tell you about this word. It's not that common a word in the Old Testament. It's used 21 times throughout the whole Old Testament. Um, It's used twice here regarding Eve as being the helper for Adam. Um, It's used three times when, when one group of people or one person stepped in to help another person, literally to rescue them in a life or death situation, okay? And the other 16 times, God is described as the helper of his people, okay? Uh, So the word is used 16 times for God and twice for Eve. Keep that in mind. So guys, if anything, what it means is your wife is is God to you, okay? Um, But but here's a few more things about that word. The word there is, is, the Hebrew word there is azer. Um, and uh, in one sense, it's an architectural term. In other words, it, it's a term, it's specifically it's a term used uh, for, for doorways or columns. Uh, picture, for example, a doorway that has two columns on either side. One of those is referred to as the azer, okay? So, so we wouldn't describe the column on one side of the doorway as helping the column on the other side any more than vice versa, right? If anything, they're two equal partners supporting that doorway. Here's here's another interesting thing. The the word in its original form, it comes from a word that literally means to rescue or to save or to be strong. You know, so, so maybe the way we should translate that verse is God looks at Adam and says it's not good for him to be alone. He needs somebody to rescue him. Literally. And, and so the, the picture here is of a man and a woman as equal partners in a relationship where, where one literally can't exist without the other, um, where both are needed, both are there for one another, both are supporting and encouraging one another, both are there to rescue one another. That's the picture here. Um, so Jesus refers back to this picture, and not only that, look at the end of, of chapter 2, when God now creates Eve and brings her to Adam, the man says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. In other words, Adam says, finally, I'm not alone anymore, and then look at verse 24, it says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So think about that for a minute. We have a God who has existed before time in this perfect relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and and we we call that the Trinity, but that word Trinity isn't in the Bible. That's a word that we've come up with to describe this relationship in which God exists. But, But when we talk about the Trinity, when we talk about Father, Son, and Spirit, we say that they are three persons, yet one God, right? Three in one. 
And that God that has existed that way from all eternity now says, I'm going to create human beings that have that same capacity for a close, intimate, mutually dependent relationship that we've existed in before time. So just as God has existed before time in that close, uh, mutually dependent relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit, now he creates human beings and says, we're going to create them to be like us, to to have that same capacity and need for one another. Um, And specifically, it it just says three persons, yet one God. At the end of this chapter, it says, now they will be two that become one. It's the picture there. By the way, um, we're not, we're, this isn't our purpose tonight to get into this in any detail, but when I'm taking a, a, a new couple that's going to get married through that, I point out to them that God is three in one, and yet he creates them two in one. Why not three in one? Why, why does he do two in one? What do you think? He's the third strand, right? He's the third part of that relationship. Yeah. So, so Jesus goes back to that. So the curveball that Jesus throws them is they expect him to pick either a lenient uh, basis for divorce or a little stricter basis for divorce. And remember again, it's one-way divorce, man to woman, not the other way. But what does Jesus say? He says divorce was never God's plan. In, in other words, Jesus says, well, it's not strict version of divorce or lenient version of divorce. It's no divorce. That's God's plan. And look at their reaction. You can tell that, once again, he stunned them. He's puzzled them. They say, well, then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of, of divorce and to send her away? In other words, they say, but what about Deuteronomy 24, Jesus? Because it says right there in the Bible that divorce is okay. And in fact, it says, here's how to do it. That's their response to Jesus. So look at what Jesus says. He says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but it was not, but from the beginning, it was not so. Now, there's a really important concept about how God's law works here that, that, that applies not only in this situation of divorce, but really applies in almost every situation in our lives in which we find ourselves as sinful human beings in a sinful, broken world. You see, what Jesus is saying here is, that there's an ultimate plan that God has for our lives. But because we live in a broken, sinful world, there is a specific will or a specific plan for our lives in a given situation, which may not be the same as God's ultimate plan for our lives. Luther talked about it this way. He said there are times when we find that whatever we do is sin, so when we do, we sin boldly. And, and that's been kind of taken out of context as a license to sin. What Luther meant is we, we, can, we, can, we, we know that we're, we may be violating God's ultimate will for our lives, but, but we're doing the best we can in that given situation as a sinful human being in a sinful, broken world, and we trust ultimately, boldly, in God's love, God's grace, and God's forgiveness. Let, let's, let's think of an example about this. Did God plan for one human being to kill another human being. No, the ultimate will of God is that no human being would ever kill another human being. But, but now you're put in a position where it's the life of your family or the life of that intruder that just broke into your house. What's God's specific will in that situation? Do you let your family die? Well, that would be sin. Do you kill the intruder? Well, that violates God's ultimate will, right? But there is a specific will in that situation. And so we as human beings are kind of caught in this 
this conundrum, really, that, that we, we might know God's ultimate will for our lives, but we may have no choice. There's no way we can live out that. And, and so we've got to deal with God's specific will in our lives as best we can in a given situation, which means we would like it to always be very black and white, and sometimes it's pretty gray. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, well, it, yeah, God's ultimate plan was a marriage would never fall apart. But Moses was simply acknowledging that in this sinful world, it's going to happen and helping you with the best way to make that happen. But then Jesus goes on to say this. And again, remember, he's speaking to these Pharisees, and, and they're rooted in the law. And, and he says, so I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, that's one possible translation here. There's a couple of others. Um, and marries another, commits adultery. Now, so keep that in mind. Uh, look in your Bibles at Mark 10, verse 11. It's on page 846 if you're using a pew Bible. This is, this, this is the end of the same conversation. If you look back a little, you'll see this is Mark's version of the same conversation with, with these Pharisees. And look how Mark records it. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. What's missing there? The exception, right? In, in Matthew, Jesus gives them an exception. In Mark, he doesn't. Now, I'm not sure which Jesus said. Um, I, I think it's very possible that these are a couple of different occurrences of the same kind of conversation, and he said one thing in one and one in another. I think it's possible that Matthew remembers the full version of what Jesus said, and Mark, who's getting it secondhand, uh, records a little uh, shorter, more abbreviated version of what Jesus said. But, but notice there's some difference here. Now, let's take a look at another passage. This is 1 Corinthians 7, 15, uh, page 955 if you're in the Pew Bible. Paul is talking about what do you do if you've come to faith, if you are now a believer in Jesus, but you're married to someone who is not a believer and, and in fact, is resistant to be a believer, the question was, well, is it okay to get divorced? And look at what Paul says. Um, uh, this is verse 15. He says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such case, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. In other words, Paul says earlier than that, he says, it's better if you don't divorce because God could work through you to save your, the soul of your spouse. But if your spouse separates from you, then, okay, then you can go ahead and be divorced. Well, wait a minute. That's Another rule that Jesus didn't give, but Paul gives it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So, so what, are, what are we supposed to make about this? Mark says it a little differently than Matthew does. Um, Paul seems to add another rule that Jesus didn't mention. The best I think we can make of this is that it's just hard to make rules about this. It, again, it just isn't as black and white as we would like it to be. It, it, it can get into a gray area. But now the conversation shifts, and Jesus is going to throw us another curveball, okay? So now the disciples are troubled by this conversation, right? They've been listening in on this, and they've heard the, the Pharisees say, well, 
easy divorce or not so easy divorce? And Jesus says, well, no divorce. But that he does give a condition for divorce. And, and, and the disciples are like, well, if I can't get rid of my wife, then why would I get married at all? I mean, that's kind of what they say, right? <laughs> they say, well, if, if such is the case of a man and his wife, it's better not to get married. And look at which, and, and here's, what, I, here's what I'm convinced the disciples expect Jesus to say. They expect Jesus to go, no, 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 marriage is awesome, marriage is great, you should get married. But it's not what he does. He throws them another curveball, and he says, well, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those whom it's given. And, and then he has this kind of weird thing where he says, well, there's people who are eunuchs from birth, and, and there are people who've been made eunuchs, but he says, but there are some people who make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, what he's saying is that it may indeed be that God calls some people to be single. And then he says, you know, let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Let's, let's uh, go back to 1 Corinthians for a second. 1 Corinthians 7, again, page 956. Here Paul's talking now about this idea about um, should you get married if you're, uh, if you're a believer? And uh, what, what do you do if you have someone who isn't a believer? And uh, in, in verses 25 to 26, look at what he says. He says, now concerning the betrothed, because there were some people that were going, okay, well, I'm engaged to be married, but you said Jesus is going to come again. So should we get married or should we kind of call it off because Jesus is probably going to come anyway? Uh, by the way, there, there may be some of you in the room who are planning weddings right now. They're going, Jesus, please come because this is getting really complicated and expensive. I don't know. But, uh, um, or maybe you're going, Jesus, just wait. we got a great party planned. Can you come after the wedding? You know, I don't know. But, uh, but, but so that was kind of the question. They're saying, well, well should we get married? And look at, look at what Paul says. He says, I have no command from the Lord. In other words, God doesn't have a rule about this. He said, but I give my judgment to the one by the Lord's mercies. By, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So don't you love that? Paul goes, well, God hasn't really told me, but I'm pretty smart and God is, trusts me, so you better listen to me. I mean, that's kind of what he says, right? But look what he says. He says, I think um, in the view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. In other words, he says, because of what's going on, because of the persecutions that we are facing, I think it's better if you just don't get married. I think it's better if you remain as it is. And, and we know that in another place, Paul talks about he himself choosing to remain unmarried. Now, by the way, uh, there's a school of thought that says Paul may very well have been widowed uh, because he was a member of the Sanhedrin, um, and, the, and you could not be a member of the Sanhedrin if, unless you were married. Um, so either they made an exception for Paul, which is possible, or he what, at one time had been married and is now widowed, um, and, and so he chose to remain unmarried. So, so what, what Jesus is saying here is, yeah, sometimes it is better to be single. That God has called some people to singleness. And, and the key phrase there is at the very end, he says, let the one who is able to receive this, receive this. In other words, he, he's saying, you know, th th this isn't a command from God. That this, is, th this is something that you've got to work through for yourself. So, so what, are, what are we to make of all this? Well, here's, here's a few thoughts. First of all, is it okay for a believer to get divorced? I was thinking about making you raise hands yes or no, but I'm not going to do that. 
The answer is, it's not so easy, right? It depends. Let me, let me give you another example. Let me, let me say, what if I had said this to you? Is it okay for a believer to cut off his hand? It depends. What if I told you, um, I made a bet with one of my friends that if a 16 seed ever beats a one seed in the NCAA tournament, I would cut off my hand. Would, would that be okay? No, right, good, I see a lot of heads shaking, no. Um, and as you know, I would have had to cut off my hand, right? Because that's what happened, right? No, of course, that'd be stupid, that'd be foolish, that'd be mutilating your body for a trivial reason. Uh, th that would of course be sinful. What if I said, the doctor said, I've got a terrible infection in my hand, and if they don't amputate it, that infection is going to spread to the rest of my body. Maybe that's the right thing in that situation, right? To have my hand cut off. Um, remember Jesus said, if your hand offends you, cut it off, because it's better to go through life without one hand and rather than spend eternity in hell. Now, Jesus was speaking figuratively there, Right? But, but so, so you see what I mean? It just, it, it isn't so easy. Is it God's ultimate will that any of us would ever lose a limb? Of course not. But in a sinful, broken world, do we sometimes lose limbs for a good reason according to God's plan? Yes, we do. Folks, it's the same thing with marriage. Is it ever God's will that anyone would get divorced? In other words, in a perfect world, um, if no one had ever sinned, would anyone ever get divorced? No. Marriages would last forever the way God planned them to. But, but what do you do when you've got a couple where there's an abusive spouse? And, and despite all efforts, uh, that person refuses to get the help that they need. Or, or what do you do if, if you've got a spouse who, in one um, slip-up, committed adultery and wants forgiveness? But that's happened 25 times. You see, it just isn't that easy. And... Uh, and do Christians get divorced for reasons that are not God-pleasing? Probably every day. Can a Christian get divorced under certain circumstances, remembering that God's specific will in that case might be that that marriage be dissolved? Yeah. And, and it just isn't that easy, just like we saw with Jesus and with Paul and with Mark's um, speaking of Jesus. It just, you just can't make a hard and fast rule. It's almost as if every single case has to be dealt with individually, seeking God's will and God's grace and trusting in that will and that in God's grace. It's one thing to understand that God's ultimate plan for marriage is that it would last forever. And and it's a serious issue anytime a marriage is disrupted. But it isn't necessarily something that isn't God-pleasing God in that specific situation, in that specific moment. But here's the thing we need to think about in all these situations. We need to make sure that we are always trusting in God's love and in God's grace. I want to read you a couple of passages from Scripture. First one's from Romans chapter 8. And, 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 and I, just, I don't want you to look it up. I just want you to sit there and, and even close your eyes if you want and listen to the words, okay? Now, now, one of the things I want you to pay attention to, though, is, is Paul talks about Moses, the law of Moses, too, just as Jesus did. Listen to this. Paul wrote this. He said, so now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. So think about that for a minute. If, if you're sitting here tonight and your life has been affected by divorce, and you're wondering, was that God-pleasing? Was, was that what God wanted? I know it wasn't ultimately what he wanted, but what, what was the specific situation? What, is God angry with me? What's the answer? No. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law that Jesus talked about tonight has been fulfilled for us through Jesus Christ. Let me read you another one. This is from 2 Corinthians. Paul says, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So we've stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, and a new life has come. A number of years ago, I was uh, doing some pre-marriage preparation with a couple who were going to get married, and, uh, and, and they had both uh, come from a broken marriage. Now, they had be, both been divorced when they were not believers. They, they had gotten divorced because it was kind of the thing to do, right? And uh, they weren't happy anymore in their relationship. And, and as they had become believers, first of all, they had met one another and fallen in love, and, and God was doing a cool thing in their lives. Um, they had a great faith together. But as we started planning together and we were talking about it, and we were going through those verses we looked at in Genesis, I, I didn't know their history at this point. And I could see both of them. There was something going on. And so finally, I just kind of set the Bible and I said, I said, okay, guys, what, what's going on here? Because, you know, your demeanor has kind of changed. And they shared their histories. And they talked about how guilty they felt about those histories. And, and, and they, were, they really wanted to follow God's will for their lives. And, and they, they seriously asked me the question. They said, do you think we ought to call off our marriage? Do you think we ought to go try to reconcile our previous marriage? Do you, it, I, I, one of them said, I don't even know how that'd be possible, but, but, but we want to do what God wants us to do. And, and is God saying we shouldn't be getting married? Well, I took them back to this verse. Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old is gone. And the new life has begun. I said, you guys have a new life in Christ. You don't have to feel guilty about your past. 
You don't, you don't have to feel like somehow you have to try to make it up to God uh, to, 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 to fix your past mistakes. New life has come. And that's the promise that we can all cling to, no matter what it is in our past. So what do we do then as Christians? Well, first of all, it's clear that we should, those of us that are married, should do all we can to make our marriages the best they can be. To, to try to be the rescuer for one another. To, to try to be the perfect partner for the other. To set aside our own needs and to focus on the needs of the other person in that relationship. And if we're single, see that singleness as a calling. That may be a temporary calling from God, or it may be a lifelong calling from God. But sometimes I think people who are single as Christians feel like somehow they're second-class citizens. But Jesus says something very different. He says that he does give that gift, that calling of singleness to some people, and it's just as important, as valid a calling as a calling to marriage. And then finally, whether, um, so, so those of you that are single, raise your hand. Those of you that are married, raise your hand. Those of you that are neither, raise your hand. Yeah, there isn't anybody, right? Right? So, so, so for one another, those of us who are believers, right, the, the best thing we can do if we are single is help those marriages around us be all they can be. And the best thing that we can do if we are married is for those of us who have that calling to be single to help them understand the richness and the blessing of that calling as well and help them follow the path that God has for them in our lives. That's what Jesus is trying to help us understand. That's what he was trying to get through to the Pharisees, that that the legalism wasn't going to work here, but instead that we needed to see our state in life as a gift from God. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, it's tough stuff to talk about, especially in a society that seems to be so messed up when it comes to marriage as a gift from you when it comes to singleness as a gift from you. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us so that we could be people who follow your will, that we could be people who see um, the gift that you've given us in relationships with others. We pray, Lord, for all of our marriages that they would be the best that they can be. We pray for those who have been called to singleness, Lord, whether that is, again, a temporary thing or a lifelong thing, um, that that they would not feel left out, but would feel a part of our family of believers. And that we would all, Lord, seek your will in every decision we make in our lives, especially when it comes to our relationships with others. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.